Good morning, good people of God. We want to begin with a land acknowledgement in accordance with the practice our denomination adopted at the 223rd General Assembly to open all meetings in this way. Because this is a Presbytery of Detroit event, we acknowledge that our Presbytery is settled on the traditional lands of the people of the Anishinaabe, which include the Ojibwa, Potawatomi, Odawa, Miami, Fox, Sauk, Kickapoo tribes. Are any members of these people with us today? We recognize that those descendants of these people live among us. Their voices are not present at this table because of a history of racism, removal, and genocide in which the church participated. We name this brokenness and acknowledge our need to repair. Call to worship. God of our ancestors and God of our dreams, we gather today to remember that you have created us all in your image and in your likeness. And so we still have the courage to dream the impossible. We remember how you spoke into the chaos and brought forth creation. And so we still have the courage to dream the impossible. We remember the ways you had delivered your people through trials and tribulations since the beginning of time right up until this present moment. And so we still have the courage to dream the impossible. You have comforted us through the middle passage, racism, segregation, strip identities, and unjust laws. And so we still have the courage to dream the impossible. God, you have been the guiding light along the path of hope and love, leading towards a beloved community where all are equally seen and radically loved. And so we still have the courage to dream the impossible. We gather today remembering your presence amongst all in the call to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you and our neighbors. We give thanks for your dreaming prophets today, especially Martin Luther King Jr. Honoring his witness, we pray for your strength, oh God, as we follow in this humble walking, seeking your justice. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. And go home to my Lord and be free. Oh, oh freedom. Oh, oh freedom. And 
God of righteousness, your servant Martin told us, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We know we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. At this pandemic moment, when we so desperately depend upon our neighbors to protect our health, this network is a living, breathing reality. But even now, too often we fail to listen to the cries of the oppressed near and far. We fail to see how our siblings' pain is our pain. Instead, we count our blessings and turn aside. Yet we are all hurting. The hurts of the world are deep, and we are caught in nets of sin, whose bindings cut into us. We are trapped in cages of climate change and a global economy that devalues human life and your good creation. We are hemmed in by long and complicated histories of racism, bigotry, white supremacy, colonialism, genocide, and greed. Lord, set us free from these prisons with your spirit of wisdom and understanding. Send your spirit of purpose and strength to lead us to a new way of being. Let your spirit of knowledge teach us to love, so at long last your justice will roll down like waters and your righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amen. Hear these words of assurance. Do not fear, says the Lord, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God is doing a new thing. 
Now it springs forth. By the grace of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Amen. be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, friends. As we approach God's Word in Scripture, let us prepare ourselves through our prayer for illumination, to allow our minds to not have to feel so worried, to allow our hearts to not have to feel so burdened, and to open ourselves to the pure guidance of God's Word. Let us pray. Dear God, Please help us to still our minds and open our hearts wider to the truth and light of your words. Guide us to deeper understanding of your thoughts and your will so that we may be fit vessels for your love and our work here on earth now. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Our first scripture comes to us today from Psalm chapter 42, verses 9 through 11. Listen now and receive the word of God. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me, while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Our second scripture comes to us today from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 21 through 26. Listen now and receive the word of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, and chief priests, and scribes, and be slain, and be raised on the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gains the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ham Jail, written April 16, 1963, in a response to a group of clergymen who had criticized his leadership of civil disobedience in Birmingham. In your statement, you assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. But is this a logical assertion? Isn't this like condemning a robbed man because his possession of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? Isn't this like condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical inquiries precipitated the act by the misguided populace in which they made him drink hemlock? Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion. We must come to see that as the federal courts have consistently confirmed, it is wrong to urge an individual to cease his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because the quest may precipitate violence. Society must protect the robbed and punish the robber. I had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth concerning time in relation to the struggle for freedom. I have just received a letter from a white brother in Texas. He writes, all Christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually, but is it, po it is possible that you are in too great a religious hurry. It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth. Such an attitude stems from a tragic miscon misconception of time, from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can be used either de destructively or constructively. More and more, I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and transform our pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. 
I began thinking about the fact that I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is the force of complacency made up of the part of Negroes as a result of long years of oppression are so drained of self-respect and sense of somebodyness that they have adjusted to segregation and in the part of a few middle-class Negroes because of a degree or of academic or economic security and, become, and because in some ways they profit by segregation have become insensitive to the problems of the masses. The other force is one of the bitterness and the hate, hatred, and it comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up across the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. Nourished by the Negro's frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination, this movement is made up of people who have lost faith in, in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity and have concluded that white man is incorrigible devil. I have tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need emulate neither the do-nothingism of the complacent nor the hatred and despair of the black nationalists. For there is the more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I am grateful to God that through the influence of the Negro church, the way of nonviolence became an integral part of our struggle. If this philosophy had not emerged, by now many streets of the South would, I'm convinced, be flowing with blood. And I am further convinced that if our white brothers dismiss as rabble-rousers and outside agitators those of us who employ nonviolent direct action, and if they refuse to support our nonviolent efforts, millions of Negroes will, out of frustration and despair, seek solace and security in black nationalist ideologies, a development that would inevitably lead to a frightening racial nightmare. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The yearning for freedom eventually manifests itself, and that is what happened to the American Negro. Something within has reminded him of his birthright of freedom, something, something without reminding him that it can be gained. Consciously or unconsciously, he has been caught up by the Zijas and his black brothers of Africa and his brown and yellow brothers of Asia, South America and the Caribbean, the United States Negroes is moving with a sense of urgency toward the promised land of racial justice. If one recognizes this vital urge that has engulfed the Negro community, one should readily understand why public demonstrations are taking place. The Negro has many pent-up resentments and Latin frustrations, and he must release them. So let him march. Let him make prayer pilgrimages to the city hall. Let him go on a freedom ride and try to understand why he must do so. If he repressed emotions are not released in a violent way, they will seek a expression through violence. This is not a threat, but a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I've tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. And now this approach is being termed extremist. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not, Je was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless, that, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who, which, which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? 
Let justice roll down like waters in righteousness, like in every flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bury in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I am, stand. I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half safe and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. You must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below the environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and godness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. Good morning. My name is Deborah Fair. I am a member of Westminster Church of Detroit, and I'm proud to serve as president of Michigan Black Presbyterian Caucus. It is my honor this morning to introduce you to Reverend Dr. Alton B. Pollard III. Dr. Pollard is, to begin, a proud HBCU graduate of Fisk University. He is a graduate of Harvard University, MDiv, and his doctorate from Duke. But today, we present him as the 10th president of Louisville, Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He began his service there in September 2018. Dr. Pollard is a scholar, an author, a consultant, and a speaker on the subject of African-American and religious studies and culture. Dr. Pollard was previously the Dean of the School of Divinity and a professor of religion and culture at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Prior to his 11 years at Howard University, Dr. Pollard served as the Director of Black Church Studies and Chair of American Religious Culture at Emory University and taught at Wake Forest University and St. Olaf College. Dr. Pollard is the author of Mysticism and Social Change, The Social Witness of Howard Thurman, and a new edition of W.E.B. Du Bois, The Negro Church as well as the co-author of Helpers for a New Healing Community, a Pastoral Care Guide Manual for HIV and AIDS. 
He serves on multiple boards of directors and advisory committees. He's a native of St. Paul, Minnesota. Dr. Pollard and his wife, Jessica, have two adult children. It is our honor to have him today, even if it is virtual, preaching to our Presbyterian churches this morning. It is my honor with the Multicultural Committee and the Michigan Black Presbyterian Caucus and the Presbytery of Detroit to welcome Dr. Pollard. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How I got over How did I make it over You know my Oh, my. 
No, we got less job. All our troubles over. No, we got to thank God. Thank Him for being so good to me. I am honored to preach on this occasion for the Detroit Presbytery's Martin Luther King Jr. service. My thanks to the planning team and to Deborah Fair for introducing me. I bring you greetings of joy and justice from Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, where I'm in my third year as president. I finally remember my visit to Detroit last February, visiting with members of the Presbytery and the Black Caucus and with Diane and Bob Agnew, who serve on the President's Roundtable at Louisville Seminary. It is good to be with you. My message for today is entitled, The Measure of Our Lives. More than 50 years have passed since the dreamer went to sleep. In the words of the famed poet, Herbert Woodward Martin, nothing has changed, we have slipped backward. A good deal has changed. We are moving forward. Somewhere between these poetic assertions, these lyric observations, these polar extremes, lies the sobering truth about the state of our national progress in affirming Black life in our own day and time. The year was 1968. I was younger then and coming into my own, at least to my mind, I was assertive and restless, an adolescent, a man-child with aspirations of full manhood. I was young, gifted, and Black, and already moving to ever deeper levels of self-awareness, emotional maturity, and communal identity by the images I saw of children and adults who looked just like me that were coming from the Deep South and from other places every day on television, in the newspaper, and in magazines. It was a beautiful sight, this Black-led, freedom-loving, justice-obsessed, God-intoxicated movement for the transformation of a people and a nation. The sea of racial solidarity and self-determination seemed endless and without bounds to me. There were church workers, youth workers, domestic workers and retired workers, farm workers, blue collar workers and bone weary workers, female and male workers, anti-poverty and anti-war workers, the mistreated, exploited and abused of African America were all on prominent display. Among the swelling numbers of insurgents were young black women and men with their fists marvelously raised in the Black Power salute. Of all the images from 1968, it is Memphis, Tennessee that I remember best. The sanitation workers with their endless procession of signs, posters, and placards written in bold black letters, held chest high, displayed in single file, which message eloquently declared, I am a man. I was sitting in the living room watching television with our family when the transformation began, a kind of spiritual and cultural metanoia of sorts, when I started to put away childish things. 
I don't remember much about TV that night, but only the breaking news that forever and irrevocably altered the life of a nation and my own. It was just after 6 p.m. Martin Luther King Jr., the announcer said, at 39 years old, was dead. This is the season we commemorate Martin's birthday, January 15, 1929. Always the vivid day for me will be April 4th, 1968. A major Tet Offensive was just beginning in Vietnam and the Democrat Lyndon Baines Johnson and the Republican Richard Milhouse Nixon were running for President of the United States. Aspirations of the nation's Apollo space program were contrasted by an escalation in civil unrest born of racism, sexism, militarism, and materialism. Support for the Black Panther Party for self-defense was surging across Black America. 32 African nations intended to boycott the Mexico City Olympics in response to the International Olympic Committee's initial decision to allow the participation of apartheid South Africa. The Martin Luther King and Marion Wright Edelman-led Poor People's Campaign for Dignity, Jobs, health care, and decent homes loomed on the horizon. And then there was Memphis. King leaned over the balcony of the second floor of the Lorraine Motel, just outside the room he always stayed in when he came to Memphis, to ask the musician slated to play for that evening's mass meeting to be sure to play his song. Be sure to play Precious Lord, Brother Branch. Be sure to play it real pretty. King's mood that night was somber. He had always drawn strength from the music, from the songs of his people that helped shape him, prepare him for what might lie ahead. He intuitively understood the traditional African proverb, the spirit will not descend without a song. It was as he straightened up that martyrdom came. The metal jacketed bullet exited the rifle's chamber. The assassin's shot found its target with ungodly accuracy and deadly speed. King fell, never to rise again in this world, at least not under his own power. A grief-stricken silence hung over our house in those days, as if a member of our own family had died. To be sure, one had. In the waning hours of April 4th, someone was heard to say, my God, what a way to die. Someone was later and more profoundly heard to say, what a way to live. As I look at the United States today, I cannot help but wonder if perhaps we as a society have chosen not to live. We are being sore tested right now for life, good life, healthy life, the life of e pluribus unum, which is our sacred trust held in common, requires a rich embrace of difference, a genuine commitment to inclusion, a principled system of government, a participatory democracy, and true justice for all of God's children.
by the end of his sojourn with us. King had diagnosed a multitude of illnesses afflicting the American body politic and undermining its general health. He called America an extremely sick nation. He challenged our identities born of exclusion and hate, our supremacies of race, religion, wealth, nationality. And today we would add gender and sexual violence and our wanton disregard for the environment. Scriptures the world over have noted the infinite and ennobling measure of human life. The way that in our text from Luke today says, if you really want to save your life, you must first give it away. We ask ourselves the question, as individuals, as people of faith and as a nation, are we moving in the direction of life? Whoever gives up the exclusive prerogative on their own life is willing to be fully present for others, heeds the call to conscience and fights with courage and conviction, they will know life. This is an inviolable and sacred truth that makes possible the keeping of that which one gives away. And so the man whose life we remember today looked at us, looked at all our households of faith, looked at his country and saw that the way of life we had chosen was leading us down the road to perdition. King challenged us to move ever more deeply into the darkly radiant depths of ourselves, to emerge from the fathoms and to move courageously toward the creating of a new society a new humanity, a new world. By the end of this mortal frame, King had already moved decades beyond where we would place him, beyond racially segregated worship and integrated lunch counters, beyond the March on Washington and I Have a Dream, beyond Vietnam and beyond our efforts to make of him a myth, beyond where most of us dare to go even now. He possessed a magnificent religious faith that the beloved community could be accomplished by a bloodless revolution. The weapons of death and their keepers awaited him. Now one with the ancestors, Martin is still bearing witness, calling us, speaking our names, implicating our being, truth-making our lives, to care for the sick, the indigent, the forgotten, the abused, the battered, the neglected, the abandoned, and the mistreated, Martin calls us. Out of the midst of viral pandemic and brutal social and racial inequality, Martin calls us to demand justice for the homeless, the hungry, the ignored, the desperate, the tormented, the fearful, the jobless, the incarcerated, the condemned, the bullied, the disabled, the immigrant, the sexually violated, the emotionally distraught, and the socially and spiritually bereft, Martin calls us to speak truth to power and in love for Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Elijah McClain for Tavon Martin, Tatiana Jefferson, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, and Sandra Bland, 
and for the black victims of murderous racism everywhere, Martin calls us. There is so much black death, so much hemorrhaging of, hemorrhaging of life in this, our nation of promise. Martin calls us too to stand with the courage of our convictions for our siblings who are queer, transgender, questioning, gender non-conforming and fluid. Latinx, indigenous, Caucasian and Asian, Muslims, Hindus, Jews, Sikhs, atheists and uncertain. Martin calls us to move beyond his many imperfections and in so doing move beyond our own to create an anti-racist intersectional movement that challenges white supremacy, white privilege, patriarchy, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, heterosexism, discrimination, stigma, and environmental destruction. Martin calls to us this day to rise up as a nation, to live out the true meaning of our creed, to find the strength to love, to give birth to tomorrow today. Martin calls us, we who are the church, to practice what we sing and teach, preach and pray about. In this season of COVID-19, we don't ever want to go back to a time when we couldn't hug or touch or be near one another. We also don't ever want to go back to a world where people are judged by the color of their skin and not the content of their character. As we vaccinate against the virus, may it be our vow no less to end racism, America's original sin. Martin knew that his death was imminent. What his way of life reminds us is what no one in their right mind wants to know. In the pursuit of righteousness, there may be a Memphis, a balcony, a cross, a grave. Few among us will knowingly or willfully choose this way of life. Yet always here and there across the landscape, there are scattered individuals and groups, some prominent, but most largely and unknown, who have dared to accept this way of life. It is a counterintuitive way, where the first are made last and the last first. It is a disruptive way, where the weak are made strong and the victims become victorious. It is a peaceful way where swords are turned into plowshares, spears are turned into pruning hooks, and war is studied no more. It is a courageous way that causes us to mount up with Harriet Tubman and Tawana Burke and seek justice, to hear Autumn Peltier and Greta Thunberg and not faint. It is a hallowed way that allows us to cling to a harrowing faith, that we shall find a way to live together in this rainbow nation and world and not perish apart as fools. On this Sabbath day and on tomorrow, as a nation we celebrate Martin's birth, honor his death and dedicate our lives to repairing our world anew. I close as I began 
with words from the poet, Herbert Woodward Martin. The dream is dead. The dreamer, excuse me, is dead. The dream is alive. The pain grows weak. The pain grows less. The tree has not bore all of its fruit. There is still work to be done in the vineyard before sunset, before fruition. Ashe. Amen. The Bellhart Confession was adopted into the Presbyterian Church in the USA in June of 2016. It is a powerful statement of our Christian faith that focuses on three things unity, reconciliation, and justice. In a time where there was um, racial rancor and division that made it practically impossible for brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to worship together and to partake. Of the Lord's Supper. It is a statement that speaks about three things. What does the church believe? What does the church stand for? And what is the church resolved to do? With this background, I invite you then to please join me in affirming our faith. Let us pray. We believe that God has revealed God's self as the one who wishes to bring about justice and true peace among people. The God in a world full of injustice and enmity is in a special way the God of the destitute, the poor, and the law. God brings justice to the oppressed and gives bread to the hungry. That God supports the downtrodden, protects the stranger, and wishes to teach the church to do what is good and to seek what is right. The church must therefore stand by people in any form of suffering and need and strive against any form of injustice so that justice may roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The church, as a possession of God, must stand where the Lord stands, namely against injustice and with the wrong. That in following Christ, the church must witness against all the powerful and privileged who selfishly seek their own interests and thus control and harm others. Amen. The Presbytery has invited me to ask you to boldly consider your offering of commitment to the Matthew 25 initiative to love your neighbor as yourself by working for racial harmony economic justice to eliminate poverty and to become a vital congregation. Today we honor the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and we do this by remembering his fight for racial harmony, one wing that helps America fly, and the other wing, racial justice and equity. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a scholar and brilliant mind. He was a clergyman who understood America needed to deal with its racial past and present in order to pave the way for an equitable future. 246 plus years of slavery and then another 100 plus years of racial discrimination means that we need to learn history and do the work of mending the racial wealth gap. Martin Luther King lamented in his letter from a Birmingham jail that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. 
I recognize my white privilege and I am very glad to participate in this celebration of a man who gave his life's work to the cause for justice. So my request is that we make a collective commitment of time, talent, and treasure toward the Matthew 25 goals for racial harmony, economic justice, and vitality of our congregations and communities. And I offer this quote as a prayer of dedication from the end of Dr. King's speech, Where Do We Go From Here? And I used this book in a class I took on the Radical King through Simmons College of Kentucky, edited by Cornell West. And this uh, speech, Where Do We Go From Here? was his last and most radical speech given to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference on August 16th in 1967. And he calls us to an audacious faith. So I offer this as our prayer of dedication. And I must confess, my friends, that the road ahead will not always be smooth. There will still be rocky places of frustration and meandering points of bewilderment. There will be inevitable setbacks here and there. And there will be those moments when the buoyancy of hope will be transformed into the fatigue of despair. Our dreams will sometimes be shattered and our ethereal hopes blasted. We may again with tear-drenched eyes have to stand before the bier of some courageous civil rights worker whose life will be snuffed out by the dastardly acts of bloodthirsty mobs. But difficult and painful as it is, we must walk on in the days ahead with an audacious faith in the future. And as we continue our charted course, we may gain consolation from the words so nobly left by the great black bard, who was also a great freedom fighter of yesterday, James Weldon Johnson. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers sighed. We have come over a way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our paths through the blood of the slaughtered. Out from the gloomy past till now we stand at last where the bright gleam of our bright star is cast. Let this affirmation be our ringing cry. It will give us the courage to face the uncertainties of the future. It will give our tired feet new strength as we continue our forward stride toward the city of freedom. When our days become dreary with low hovering clouds of despair, and when our nights become darker than a thousand midnights, let us remember that there is a creative force in this universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil, a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Thank you for your offerings of time and talent and treasure toward the Matthew 25 initiative that this presbytery has boldly called us to pursue. Be at peace, amen.
Greetings to you. My name is Dr. Flo Barbie Watkins and I serve as the Transitional General Presbyter for the Presbytery of Detroit. We have now come to the time in our order of worship that we go to God in prayer. We're reminded by the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, we are tied in a single garment of destiny we are caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Dr. King also said, 
Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So let's all of us try to be the light of Christ and to pray, to pray for our country, to pray for our state, to pray for our congregations in the Presbytery of Detroit, even now in this moment. Let us pray. Holy God, a, a cloud of manifestation and promise and hope hovers over us. And at the same time, we have to contend with the heaviness, the heaviness of this time, the heaviness of this day. As we remember the drum major for justice, Dr. Martin Luther King, we are still mindful that there are many black and brown people who are exclaiming, I can't breathe. So God, give me the strength to pray. As we raise our hands toward the sky and lift our hearts and lift our eyes to the hills from whence cometh our help. Lord, our people have been choked and shot and assaulted too many times. So God, we now remember, we remember the, the mothers, the fathers, the sisters, the brothers, the cousins, the friends, the big mamas. Remember their laughs and their smiles, their dreams and their struggles, their talents and their personalities. Oh God, how long, how long must we wait for justice to roll down like rivers of waters? So Lord, we pray. We pray to the God who is our shelter and our strength, who always remembers us in times of trouble. We shall overcome someday. God, we pray for our communities. We pray for the elderly who are confined to their homes and separated from family and loved ones and support for children removed from school. We pray for those who have lost their source of income. And we pray, oh God, for those who live in fear, fear in their homes, fear in the Capitol building, fear in our neighborhoods, fear in our streets. And we offer, oh God, this prayer, we ask you to bless it with an extraordinary amount of love and kindness. We shall overcome someday. Lord, you are in our midst. You are in the midst of our good times. You are in the midst of our, our troubles. So, oh God, we pray for those young minds, those young brothers, sisters, siblings, for those who are anxious as they matriculate at our colleges and our universities and seek employment, worried for their own concerns and their own health. Lord, we pray we shall overcome someday. Lord, we pray, we pray for the workers. We pray for essential workers, people who are on medical staffs and hospital workers, people who have to risk their lives every day. We pray for those medical researchers seeking to make certain that a vaccine works. We pray for our teachers and social workers, people who are protecting the vulnerable, for care workers, for 
people, for teachers, for farmers, for cleaners, for all of those who have been given the charge to make certain that our spaces are safe or we shall overcome someday. Lord, be with us in our own times of need. Help us to be able to ask, knowing that you will hear us, oh God, but also give us the grace to help others and to do what has been asked of us. We shall overcome someday. And God, we pray for the leaders. We pray for the leaders in our nation. We pray for the government. We pray for, most of all, those who are working during this pandemic to try to find answers. God, we pray for elected officials, those in Michigan and the surrounding areas within this beautiful and wonderful state. Lord, it is in your mercy that we proclaim once again that we shall overcome someday. But oh God, our hearts are still heavy from the days before us as we had to watch the unwatchable and think about the unthinkable and bear witness to the unbearable and to cry out for solutions, maybe even to the unfixable. Our groanings are too deep for words, oh God. And tears even fall down our faces as we consider that violence is happening domestically rather than from foreign countries. We shall overcome someday. So God, give us the, tr the strength to continue to unmask idolatries in church and culture. And oh God, give us the strength to work on eradicating poverty and dismantling racism as we all embrace the dream of the dreamer who gave everything he had to create a more just and acceptable and beloved community. And so God, we pray all these things and ask them in the name of Jesus the Christ in whose name we pray, amen. And thanks be to God. Let us pray as Jesus taught his disciples saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen.
I offer this benediction. Like Martin and all who dare to dream God's dream, may you continue to be who and how you are. Challenge a mean world with your acts of kindness. Let faith be your bridge to overcome evil with good. Ignore no vision which comes to increase your witness. Dare to love deeply and risk everything for that which is just. Let the people hear in you the grandeur of God's own heart. Let gratitude be the pillow upon which you rest each day. This is our hope, and this is our faith. Amen.